1: The Economist.
2: Hello, I'm Edward McBride, the finance editor. This week on Money Talks, is it a good thing for the public to know everything about their leaders' financial affairs? We dive deep into the murky world of tax transparency with our economics correspondent, Sumea Keynes.
1: Personally, the idea of having a really healthy, well-informed debate about uh, the tax system and the income distribution is extremely attractive to me. I would love to have that kind of debate.
2: But first we're going to Russia. The Arctic air has made its mark on Moscow, a frigid city doused in snow and ice. We're used to thinking of the Russian economy as lurching constantly from crisis to crisis. When oil prices came crashing down at the end of 2014, it seemed like Russia was on the brink of an economic catastrophe. And yet the Russian economy is not doing quite as badly as you might have expected. Sergei Guryev. Professor of economics at Sciences Po in Paris and formerly of the New Economic School in Moscow explains: This time around, unlike 2008-2009, uh, Russian government has done a much better job by uh, allowing the ruble to fall uh, by moving to the flexible exchange rate, and therefore the ruble depreciation buffered the shock and uh, Russian economy didn't suffer as much from this fall in oil prices. But allowing the ruble to devalue has had its
1: costs. We have to go shopping with a calculator and work out how much it will cost us. Before, I didn't do that.
2: As the ruble depreciated, the purchasing power of ordinary Russians declined, making it harder to buy essentials such as food and medicine. But Sergei told us that this hasn't affected Putin's popularity in the way you might have expected. Since we don't see the mass uh, protests, we see that in general, so far, the government has been able to convince Russians that the shock is uh, bearable. According to Sergei, the change in Russian economic policy can be credited to Putin himself. But there is another big player in the drama. Explicitly, this is uh, responsibility of the central bank governor, Madame Nabiulina. Elvira Nabiulina has been head of Russia's central bank since 2013. She's also the subject of a profile in the upcoming issue of The Economist. To discuss Russia's surprisingly adept economic management, I'm joined by our reporter Callum Williams, who's been following the Russian economy since the crisis began. So, Callum, do you agree with Sergei's assessment that it's Putin who deserves the credit for Russia's sound economic policy?
0: Well, I think it's Putin and uh, Nabilina. I mean, Putin does not really have any particular knowledge of, of economics. He hasn't really been sort of trained in economics or anything like that. So the approach really since he came to power, but particularly in the last few years, has been to sort of entrust economic policy to a sort of small coterie of, you know, very uh, experienced and, and technocratic bureaucrats, of whom one is is Nabilina. Now, she's been uh, at the head of the uh, central bank for uh, about sort of three years now. And what she's done is really to prepare the Russian economy for the downturn in all... Or- Oil prices. They've accepted that this will happen eventually, and indeed it did happen at the end of 2014.
2: But even though Putin's always used technocrats, technocrats haven't always served the Russian economy very well, have they? I mean, what, what happened in 2008 9, the previous crisis?
0: No, that's right. So 2008-9, there was another fall in oil prices. The response from the central bank back then was to try and defend the ruble by spending foreign exchange reserves in the, in, the, in the currency market. And essentially, they burnt through about $200 billion worth in a matter of weeks. And it didn't really solve the problem. And essentially, it created a kind of funding crisis in Russian corporates and in other funding markets, causing a, a very severe recession in 2009. So as you say, yes, they haven't always done very well.
2: So what's been different this time around?
0: As Sergei says, they've let the currency float. In addition to that, they've done a few other things. One, they've managed to basically make the Russian uh, investment market slightly stickier. They've attracted in pension funds and institutional investors from abroad, and they tend to sort of hold on to assets, even if there is a sort of short-term adjustment. They've also developed the domestic market, so pension funds and life insurance, that those two industries have grown. And the result of that is that capital outflows... Have not been as bad as they were in 2008 9. The second thing they've done is to be very kind of uh, strategic with their use of reserves. They haven't sort of blindly thrown money at the currency markets as they did a few years ago. Instead, they've targeted specific you know, dollar amounts to kind of you know, important banks and energy companies to allow them to repay FX debt. We can really credit. A relatively mild Russian recession to what the central bank has done.
2: One of the striking things about these relatively sound policies is that it's not what other oil exporters have done, is it? It's it's not what countries like Nigeria or closer to Russia, say Kazakhstan, have done. And they've suffered consequences just like Russia did back in 08, 09, right?
0: Absolutely. So the idea in Nigeria and, and Kazakhstan was to try and prop up the value of the currency. And the reason they do that is because they want to maintain the, the purchasing power of their, their population. You know, so the population can continue to import goods. Russia has decided to let the currency float, which means that imports have got a lot more expensive. Real wages have fallen for the first time since Putin came to power. So it's a big change. The thing is, is that the Russian kind of appetite for, for, for sort of pain is, is relatively high. You have to bear in mind that real wages have increased enormously since Putin has been in power. So a sort of small drop now doesn't matter too much. And, of course, there's all the other kind of political ways in which Putin uh, manages to keep his support.
2: So there has been short-term pain for ordinary Russians in, in the form of their reduced
0: purchasing power because of the fall in the ruble. Uh, but, but there have been benefits as well, right? Absolutely. So there's the economic benefits, the recession has not been as deep as it would have been otherwise. You don't have a kind of rash of defaults among banks and, and energy companies, and that has really saved the Russian economy from, from, from much worse. There are also the political benefits of not having blown through billions of dollars' worth of foreign exchange reserves, which, which in Russia really do hold a, a, you know, a huge a symbolic importance.
2: Okay, but so this, this very sound economic management, will, will it last? Will it help the Russian economy to, to start growing again soon?
0: Well, let's be clear... In the long term, the Russian economy is, is managed extremely badly. Property rights aren't enforced properly and there's and there's no kind of rule of law. The central bank can't do much about that, if, if anything. And Nabilina is very, very clear on that. So while her short-term impact has been very useful, she really has no power over what happens in the long term in Russia.
2: So it turns out there are a few limits to technocracy after all. That's too bad. Um, Callum Williams, thank you very much. Remember, you can join in by tweeting us at econbizfin or at econeconomics. Now, this week, David Cameron made history by becoming the first British prime minister to publish his tax return. This was his latest attempt to put a stop to questions about his personal financial affairs. But Mr Cameron does not appear to be out of the woods. Uh, There have also been questions about a £200,000 gift from his mother, which some think represented an attempt to dodge inheritance tax. But are we being unfair to the prime minister? How far should he have to go in terms of revealing his personal finances? Uh, Should other politicians also be releasing their tax returns? Maybe all our tax returns should be public. Joining me now is Sumer Keynes, our economics correspondent, who's been looking at the question of transparency since the Panama Papers broke. So, Sumeya, the British system is coming under fire, uh, but there are other countries that do this differently, right?
1: Sure. So some people will have looked on at this issue with some amusement. Uh, In Sweden, Finland and Norway, everyone's annual tax return is made public. In Finland, when this first started, it used to be that town criers would shout out people's tax arrangements so that even illiterate people could, could know who was paying what now they're put online and every year the tabloids engage in a bonanza um, constructing you know top 50 richest uh, athletes or singers or, or cultural figures the idea is that this this promotes a healthy debate about the income distribution there's a study that sh- that shows that an increase in transparency that came when people's records were first put online led to an improvement in people's understanding of the income distribution and also changed their preferences regarding redistribution
2: this sounds like a nightmare in, in lots of respects. Uh, anybody looking up anybody else's tax returns, there's, there's no privacy at all about your personal finances, is there?
1: Sure. So, so this was a problem. And arguably in Norway, it did go a bit far. Apparently, at one point, there was an app where you could uh, walk down a street and the app would tell you who, who lived in which house and how much they earned. Apparently, criminals were using this to work out which houses to burgle. So since they were first all put online, the Norwegians have actually rode back. If you want to search for someone's tax records, then that person gets notified. It's only the the media that can do these anonymous searches for everyone's records. So they have have tightened up um, in in the face of these concerns that everyone was just snooping on everyone else.
2: But even so, you you wouldn't have to be hiding vast offshore wealth to think that it's a little bit distasteful that that people can gain access to your personal uh, financial details. Isn't there a middle way of some sort?
1: So there is an argument that maybe you only want to do this for public officials. Perhaps you want to check whether um, they have any conflicts of interest or you want to look to see what their income is so that you can see if there have been any unusual changes in their income that might Indicate some kind of bribe. So in uh, India, for example, um, there is a system where everyone standing to be an MP has to disclose all of their assets. And there is some evidence that 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 has limited the amount of rent-seeking from politicians. In Britain... Arguably, we already have a middle way. Members of Parliament have to disclose any conflicts of interest, um, and those are made available to the public.
2: But, but so arguably, that system that Britain has of, of reporting conflicts of interest didn't work in this case. I mean, David Cameron seems to have followed. The letter of the rules and, and reported all the things that he was explicitly obliged to report. But surely it is a bit of a conflict of interest if the prime minister is, is changing the rules regarding offshore tax vehicles when his mother is benefiting from one, when he benefited from one shortly before He became prime minister and and might stand to benefit from one in the future.
1: There's a clear grey area in terms of who you want to disclose financial interests. And this is part of the problem when you make politicians declare their own financial interests. You might worry that actually they have close relations with, with other people who who also benefit. So yeah, you might argue that it didn't work very well. Um, having read the MP's code of conduct uh, earlier today, it says that there, there is a miscellaneous category. You're meant to report anything that a reasonable person might think would be a conflict of interest. This issue of, of what you declare seems to be slightly distinct from whether you publish your annual income tax return, which often isn't itemised. It doesn't show exactly where your holdings are and so perhaps doesn't give you the right kinds of information there's actually one study um, that compared countries and looked to see which was most associated with better governance and they found out that actually it matters more that you disclose you know where your financial holdings are so you know which companies you have holdings in that matters much more than disclosing the level or the amount of income in those shares
2: So so where do you come down on all of this? Do you you believe in radical transparency in in the Norwegian style or or do you think something akin to perhaps a a slightly... Uh, more fiercely policed uh, register of members' interest, like in Britain, is the way forward?
1: Well, personally, the idea of having a really healthy, well-informed debate about uh, the tax system and the income distribution is extremely attractive to me. I would love to have that kind of debate in Britain. However, I also understand that the appetite for uh, such a radical change in the amount of information that is disclosed, there isn't much appetite for that.
2: So thank you very much, Sumeya. Look, our our reporters will go to great lengths to to bring you information as far as reading the MP's code of conduct in its entirety, apparently. And thank you very much for that. Anyway, that's it for this week on Money Talks. I'm Edward McBride for The Economist. Goodbye. Selling a little or a lot?